right, everybody. Thank you for joining me. This is The Status Quo. I am your host, Matt Freeman, coming at you from a long drive to see some family and uh, working on a shorter, probably, episode for you guys today. And first, I'd like to apologize. Uh, I know our schedule's been all screwed up lately, and uh, I haven't been able to push out content like I'd like to lately. And I'm going to apologize in advance for the next couple months, too, because it's probably going to be like this for at least a little while. I'm going to try as hard as I can not to miss any episodes. But the fact of the matter is, is that I'm I'm knee-deep in fire school right now. It's a lot more work than I expected. It's a you know, 300, 400-hour program, something like that, uh, packed into a couple months. Plus, you know, full-time job, little side business, kids, family, everything else. And that really leaves me very little time for podcasting. And hell, half the time I have to do it, like driving into my car. But the actual recording is, is one thing. The, the research and, you know, everything it takes to produce these episodes to the quality that you guys are used to expecting is, is quite another altogether. And it's very difficult for me right now to get that kind of time. I mean, like, I, you know, I wanted to do the next Irish history show, but... I got so sidetracked in research and everything else, it's not even close to done right now. So, yeah, the program's over December 10th, first week of December, something like that. So for the next three months or so, uh, like I said, I'm going to try not to miss any episodes if possible. Um, and if I do, I hope you guys will cut me a little bit of slack. And hopefully I'll be able to, at least, even if they're not quite as frequent, I'll still be able to push out as much of the same quality content that you guys are used to expecting out of me. So, in that vein, I wanted to talk about something, uh, certainly in our wheelhouse, a little different than what we've been talking about lately. And what brought this on is 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 watching these you know these freaking huge riots and people getting shot, killed, beaten, storefronts being destroyed, people's lives being ruined, um, people getting killed, all this violence. And then this is all taking place within an election year. So if that wasn't bad enough, I mean, the campaigning for this election has basically been nonstop since 2016. Both sides have been basically campaigning since the day that the president, Donald Trump, got sworn into office, or at least the day he got elected. And this is, something feels different. I know we say it every, we don't, but people say it all the time. This is the most important election of our lifetime. I know they say that every damn time. But something really does feel different this time. And I, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that there's going to be any difference in outcome between whether we get one criminal of one stripe or another. I, it's not going to matter. But what, what does feel different is the atmosphere regarding mainstream society. And I do think that depending on who gets elected, there's going to be some violence one way or the other. And mob, mob rule, action, riots, who knows? And... I mean, the obvious one, I think, is that if Donald Trump gets reelected, we're going to see basically a continuation of what we're seeing going on right now. And I, I hate to play the whole partisanship game, but really, if you look at what's going on, I mean, it's not kind of it's not hard if, even for these dumbass Republicans to make a case talking about how, well, the Democrats have have not they refuse to condemn the riots. They want to defund the police. They want to watch these cities burn. They want to you know, they want to take your guns like. It's a slam dunk case to make for why you should support the Republicans. If you care about organized, civilized society at all. And it puts us in kind of a weird spot as, uh, as libertarians, right? Because we're, we're anti, we are radical anti-statists, right? However, I think it's worth considering the fact that, that 
for you to have a proper, private property-based libertarian society, you can't have chaos. Like, I've heard the term, and mostly it's something I've heard on right-wing media, but it is kind of, kind of fitting, I guess. And that's anarcho-tyranny, right? That's where we have this, essentially we have this kind of quasi-state of lawlessness, but only in reference to certain things. Like, for example, you can go out and riot, but you can't go to work. You can go out and loot stores, but you can't open your own store. And, and things like this. And when we have basically the cops, like the cop, we know that the cops like will arrest you, at least in some places, if you're standing around with a rifle in front of your business, you might get arrested. But if, the, if a bunch of looters come by and wreck your shit, well, then the cops won't do anything. Or even worse, what if you have to fire in self-defense, you know, of your, of your property? Well, you might be getting charged. I mean, we, we've seen this thing going on right now in Kenosha, which I'm not going to comp- I'm not going to comment on right now because I don't really know enough about it. I've seen, basically all I've seen is short video clips and memes. So that's not really enough for me to feel like I have an informed opinion on that. But the point I'm trying to make here is that even though people like that are kind of outside the traditional left-right paradigm, people like us, people that listen to my show, people in the liberty movement, even though we really kind of understand that really these, these two parties are basically two sides of the same coin, even though we know that, for, to a lot of people in the mainstream, it makes a huge difference whether who sits in that Oval Office chair has a D or an R by their name. And there's a lot of people, I mean, of course, as we know, perception is reality. So the fact that people believe that stuff, that makes it real for them. So, so we have all that extra tension being rolled in this, into this election year. And I think that it's just been a great display of this, this kind of religious fervor that, in, that infects American society. And I mean, I've said it several times on the show before, of course, statism is a religion. People believe that somehow by virtue of this one person getting more you know, votes in a popularity contest, they're magically transformed into this, into this virtuous holy person and their conduct affects the whole nation, right? The, the, fact, the fact that one person occupies his chair somehow magically means that that now things in the whole country are going to be different. And this is, this is a religious dogma, essentially. Just like some of the other ones, like, your vote's important. you got to vote. You know, these type of things. They're, they're all, there's, if you sit down and think, which we'll go through quite a few today, but they're all through American society. And that's going to be the topic of our show today is going to be America's civic religion, or civil religion if you prefer. But before we get started... Um, I don't think I have any new Patreon shoutouts for today. I didn't check the emails uh, last two days, so I might have missed one. But if not, I'll get you next time. Uh, let's see what else here. So Twitter is at statusquopod. You can shoot me an email, thestatusquo at gmail.com. And our website is thestatusquo.net. And even though we might be missing you know, a week or two here, hopefully not any, but if it, in case it happens, I do want people to keep in mind that there's over 200 hours of backlog content that you can look at for, or you can listen to, I guess. <laughs> you can't really look at it. You can listen to for free on every major podcatcher. Every single episode we've ever done on the show, none of that stuff's behind a paywall. So get in and check it out while you can because that might be changing. Uh, I don't know yet. But still, I want to bring to your attention that we've done several fantastic episodes and just a couple of my favorites are uh, the Battle of Athens with Luke from Biting the Bullet, the Battle of Blair Mountain with uh, Brent from Smoke Pit Storytime podcast. 
We have our History of Gun Control series, which is still ongoing. So there's plenty of stuff out there for you to get caught up on or to check out for the first time in case you're a new listener. Anyway, on with what we were talking about here today. So, yes, I mean, statism is a religion. I don't think that's really too difficult of a point to argue because if you think about it, like, what does a religion have? Well, a religion has dogmas, right? These things that you, that you can't prove but you have to accept as an article of faith. Uh, things like, uh, you know, the, it's a government by the people and for the people, other people. The government represents us. Things like, you know, your, your civic duty to vote. What else, hmm? How about the U.S. military fights for our freedom? Or how about this one that the neocons love to say all the time? America is the indispensable nation. Or another one like, they like to say a lot is that America should lead the free world, which really means rule and dominate and have an empire over. So there's dogmas, right? There are religious texts and scriptures, constitution, declaration of independence, some political speeches. There are professions of faith. There are sacrifices. So many, there's holy places and temples. We'll get into this here in a little minute, but there are so many kind of overtly religious things about American civil society that I think you'd be hard-pressed to argue that it's not a religion. And of course, like these things didn't just come out of nowhere. No, like so many other things, they are buried within American history, if you know where to look. Not a new thing at all. But I want to start with a little preface, though. Look, I know a lot of you, my long-term listeners, will know my stance on religion. I myself am personally religious, but I'm a bit of a quietist. I typically don't talk about it a whole lot. I don't, I don't really push my religious beliefs on somebody else. Now, if they ask me my opinion, of course, I'd be glad to tell somebody exactly what I believe. But I, I mostly keep that stuff to myself and in my personal life. I don't talk about much on the show. Um, and, but I don't think that being religious is, is, is a bad thing, obviously, at all. Mostly, for the most part. I mean, there are certain times where religion gets, I think, a lot of times twisted and, and morphed into something that it shouldn't be or for, for evil purposes. But if you look a lot of times, who's behind that? It's the state itself. So I would actually think that maybe religion, having some t- sort of religious code to follow, whether it's the Ten Commandments or the laws of the Torah or, or you know, the Bhavada Gita or something like that. I mean, I don't think that's necessarily such a bad thing. I think human beings need some sort of moral framework to operate out of. And if they don't have like a religious scripture like, like they have for most of human society, I think you'll find that there's, there's been attempts throughout history to replace that with something like uh, secular humanism, right? And that was this idea that people all have kind of intrinsic value by virtue of them being human beings, which, of course, you know, like we would all agree with that as libertarians. Unfortunately, though, when it's like this top-down kind of ideology that's pushed by the state, it turns out to be there's not much of a backstop for immoral behavior there that exists because that was like one of the ideas that the Soviet Union was really, you know, promoted a lot. And then, of course, you look at what Stalin's government did to people. I mean, obviously, they didn't think people had any worth at all except for the group that are in the Politburo. So for that, then, I don't think that being religious, even devoutly religious, is necessarily such a bad thing because if you don't like what a religion is doing or if you don't like its tenets or how it makes people act, then you don't have to take part of it. And the people that are exercising that religion, for the most part, are going to have very little impact on your life except for maybe knocking on your door and and wondering if you want to hear about the good word of Jesus. 
But when you when you get to state in the mix, though, that takes on a very different dynamic, doesn't it? I mean, because what is the state? The state is the organized use of physical force and coercion, right? It is the state is a monopoly on violence within a given territorial area. And when the state gets mixed up in religion, you have one of two things that happens. You have like straight up theocracies, places like modern day Saudi Arabia and Iran, where like at least in Saudi, the Sharia law is the basis of a fair bit of the legal code, even though even though with that extreme of an example, um, a lot of modern Islamic scholars will say that Sharia was never ever meant to be interpreted as such and applied as such. It was not supposed to be this extreme, harsh, you know, kind of Hammurabi-esque penal code. But either way, when the state got involved, they've essentially taken everybody that lives in Saudi Arabia and they've they've imposed this code of ethics and, and code of you know conduct on them that stems from Sharia. So if you steal something, right, you get your hand chopped off. People are still executed by beheadings, including teenagers for all kinds of ridiculous infractions and things like that. So that's result number one. And then result number two is what you have in America, where essentially you have the blending of traditional religious precepts, practices, dogmas, and things like that with essentially the civic fabric of a country and what you end up with is people that have a religious devotion to the state and that's just as bad i think um and also like when it comes to theocracies obviously that's not good because if somebody doesn't believe in that religion well then now they have agents of the state bringing force against them for just living the way that they want to live and that's obviously not a good thing is it so I think we can all see the problems of a theocracy, right? But really, when you talk about, like, when we're going to get this into this here in a more in a little bit, but I want you to keep this question in the back of your head for now. Like, so we can all see the problems of having a theocracy. I mean, The Handmaid's Tale that's on Hulu, great perfect example right there of a dystopian hellhole. And we can see those problems. That's pretty easy. But I ask you, is, is a modern, quote-unquote, liberal, like Western democracy – really that much different when it comes to the religious beliefs about the state that its citizens hold? So, of course, where did this idea come from? I, I mean, this is not a new concept. The idea of mixing up religion with the state goes back to the Bronze Age or even earlier. But the first person to really um, illustrate and use the term civic religion was the uh, king of bad ideas, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, right? And if you recognize the last name Rousseau, of course, that's from the uh, creator of the infamous social contract, right? The idea that there's a contract, an implied one, between people and the state, and therefore the state has certain obligations and duties, and... The people, therefore, also have certain obligations and duties because they live in a civilized society. Now, of course, we're not going to litigate this on, on here, but it's pretty obvious. Like, just the, what's the question? What if the state doesn't hold up their end of the bargain, right? What if they breach the contract? Well, no, you still have to obey it. It's not like you don't have to obey the laws of the state anymore. Obviously not. So that idea is obviously ridiculous on its face. But this, uh, this idea of a civic religion was an entire chapter in the social contract um, book itself, which of course, you know, social contract, another bad idea. So I'm going to read a little excerpt from uh, Encyclopedia Britannica about 
Rousseau and the civil religion. Here, quote. Rousseau, pro, quote, geez. Rousseau, Rousseau proposed that dogmas of civil religion ought to be simple. They should affirm the afterlife, a God with divine perfection, the notion that the just will be happy and the wicked punished, and the sanctity of the social contract and the polity's laws. Civil religion should also condemn intolerance as a creedal matter, Rousseau contended, given that there can never again be an exclusive national religion. A civil profession of faith ought to tolerate all and only those religions that tolerate others, he suggested, at least insofar as the respective religious groups do not uphold beliefs that run contrary to citizens' duties. More extremely, Rousseau, Rousseau averred that penalties might rightly be applied against those who do not observe the civil religion. Although government cannot obligate a person to believe its dogmas, one who fails to adopt them can rightly be banished from the state on the grounds of unsociability. Additionally, a citizen who has publicly acknowledged civil dogmas may be punished with death if, subsequently, the citizen behaves as if he does not believe them. End quote. So this type of thing, though, is, is hardly unique, like I said. I mean, just about every ancient state had some sort of official state religion. Uh, a lot of them were kind of pagan of one sense or another. They were polytheistic. Um, the ancient Egyptian gods is a great example. The pharaoh, it's, and pharaoh himself was a god. Um, but Rousseau's writing marked a departure from that. It was essentially a top-down method of using the trappings of a religion to create some sort of artificial civic virtue, I guess. And you can see places like ancient Greek city-states and Rome, of course, too. They had their own gods, which, of course, approved of and gave authority and legitimacy to, to the heads of the state. But there's, that's one thing, right? And it's obvious to see why that is clearly a civic religion. Um, but in America, however, we have more of the Rousseau's idea. We have a largely secular society. when We don't have some kind of official state religion or deity or anything like that. But that doesn't mean that we don't have every bit as much of a religious faith in the state itself as these earlier um, you know, Bronze or Iron Age kingdoms did. And this thing has played a, a large part in American history really all the way back to the very first colonists and pilgrims in the 1600s. But it wasn't really recognized as such, by scholars anyway, until about the 1960s. There was a scholar named uh, Robert Bella who published an essay called Civil Religion in America. And I think it was published in a magazine called Daedalus. And he defined civic religion as this, quote, Although matters of personal religious belief, worship, and association are considered to be strictly private affairs, there are, at the same time, certain common elements of religious orientation that the great majority of Americans share. These have played a crucial role in the development of American institutions and still provide a religious dimension for the whole fabric of American life, including the political sphere. This public religious dimension as expresses a set of beliefs, symbols, and rituals that I am calling American civil religion. The inauguration of a president is an important ceremonial event in this religion. It reaffirms, among other things, the religious legitimation of the highest political authority. End quote. So I think what we could take from this quote, this definition, is that the civic religion essentially is it's the state co-opting various things that we normally associate with religious practices for itself. And basically the state takes these things to give itself this veneer of legitimacy. And even in Rousseau's definition itself, we see the words dogma, sanctity, civic profession of faith. 
I mean, I don't know. That's pretty explicit. Now, here's the thing, though, is that people took Rousseau's idea, the French revolutionaries like the Jacobins, and they tried to actually impose this on the new Republican France using uh, Rousseau's ideas. They had this thing called the cult of the supreme being for a while, which is supposed to be like kind of a national religion where people were dedicated to mostly civic matters and things like that. And it didn't really ever go anywhere because it was just completely alien. Because even um, up until the French Revolutionary years, I mean, the Catholic Church still had enormous sway in France itself. And yeah, it might be true that the revolutionaries might might have been able to topple the the church kind of hierarchy as far as in the political sphere. The fact of the matter is most of the regular people still very wholly believed in the Catholic Church as as an institution. And this is evidenced by the fact that some of the things the revolutionaries did is they tried to, um, they tried to get rid of, they renamed, they, they redid the calendar, right? So they got rid of all the, the saints days, the religious significance, and they replaced things with like, uh, you know, these agrarian tools and seeds and plants and things like that. It's, it's some really pretty wild shit. And, um, so like it never took off because people just, had another religion that they clung to more tightly. So it was really largely a failure. But instead in America, though, the state, instead of trying to force a new religion on everybody else, has uh, co-opted much of the kind of dominant, naturally existing Judeo-Christian tradition in America. And instead, it's kind of taken it and molded it and tweaked it and twisted it into uh, a religion where the state or maybe society is the deity. And this really reminds me of uh, Mussolini's comments on fascism. Because we talked about that a couple episodes, um, Andrew and I did, and I talked about it myself on a later episode about fascism. So Mussolini said that for socialism to be successful, it has to be a form of socialism that kind of is organic to the society that it exists in. And that's why fascism was so popular in Germany and uh, Italy is like uh, basically a right-wing socialism, you could think of it as. And that's because instead of like doing the Soviet thing where they tried to, uh, you know, they, they talked about abolishing the family. They didn't even try it, but they wanted to. They wanted to destroy private property and, you know, small business owners. They wanted to basically abolish the church, anything else that people could have loyalty to besides the state. And this is a large reason why that socialism was never anywhere near as successful in uh, the Soviet Union as it was in, you know, fascist Italy and, you know, Nazi Germany. But because they, on the other hand, they, the, Mussolini at least intrinsically understood that people are not going to be too supportive of whatever new government system you have if you, if you try to strip away everything they like about their lives from them. So instead of taking away, you know, breaking up families, instead of abolishing churches, instead of, you know, destroying businesses and things like that, well, Instead, they took these things and they co-opted them and, and molded them for the benefit of the state. Like uh, in fascist Italy, like the family was exalted as the, uh, the building block of society, as cru- crucial to a fascist state. Same thing with Germany, where you know, German women, their number one responsibility was to raise up good boys you know, for the Reich. And just like that, that's what the American civic religion has done, whether people have knowingly done it or not. Um, a lot of it, I think, kind of grew organically just from 
the way oration and history is taught. And of course, we can all see why the state would love it if it had a group of citizens that adored everything it does and thought that it had this sacred significance and, and things like that. And it's been a success. It's been so successful, in fact, that most people, if you said America had a civic religion where the ultimate source of what is good is the federal government, most people would probably pretty strongly disagree. But they drink just that kind of Kool-Aid by the gallon. I mean, of course, I think that Democrats are much more comfortable being statists than Republicans are, so they tend to be a little more comfortable with their language. So one thing you'll hear, Democrats essentially, and kind of leftists in general, basically they're, one of their kind of like dogmas, one of their frameworks for operating in the world is that the, they have the idea that if the government does something, it'll be fair, it'll be impartial. This is taken as a given for any type of democratic program. Just like, a, you know, a great example is healthcare, right? Democrats and, and, and leftists and whatever else tend to think that if the government pays for all health care, that means everybody will get the exact same thing that they want. Everybody will get everything they need. There won't be any mean insurance companies do not denying people. But then again, what really happens, we've seen this in socialized medicine countries all across the planet, is that people that have means, that have connections, are able to jump the line ahead of everybody else. And they have private facilities for government you know, people and things like that. So this idea that the government is going to make things more fair is, is one of the dogmas of kind of the leftist version of American civic religion, but we can see it's just, it's not true. And because of that type of success, the state has been essentially been able to get people to accept all the broken parts of the system by separating their thought processes, these people from reality. Um, they, people every day in America, they accept actions by the state that harm them, that are actually against their own interests. But by telling them it's for the common good or it's their duty or something along those lines, the state gets people to go along with all kinds of stupid crap that they would never do in any other context. And this, of course, includes things like paying higher taxes, uh, submitting to oppressive regulations, joining the military, fighting in pointless wars, this type of thing. Now, of course... Um, whatever civic religion exists, and America is not the only country in the world that has this type of thing. I mean, there's definitely one in Great Britain, um, Australia too. Australia's, uh, a great example in Australia is they have Anzac Day, right? And Anzac Day is, is kind of like an Australian version of Memorial Day. Uh, largely, it's dedicated to the losses that the Australian and, and New Zealand militaries suffered in the First World War especially like in the invasion of Gallipoli and things like that, which is something I want to talk about on our next Irish history series, which is going to be about the First World War. But basically what you have there is that there's been – like this is the day that essentially consecrated the nation of Australia. And there's been politicians that said – that have said that, you know, Australia as a nation was born on Anzac Day. And if not on Anzac Day, it was born in blood during the First World War. It's a very, very religious overtone statement. So it's not just America that has this kind of thing going on. No, it's all, I think it's a lot of the West in general. But America's kind of civic religion, I think, developed in a, a more unique way and really a way that happened over longer periods of time, which enabled it to be more successful. And part of that is because America, at least in the beginning, was a largely decentralized, you know, collection of states or colonies. And 
this meant that cultures were much more regional, places were much more parochial. There was not a whole lot of national, really anything. And the Puritans brought this kind of, kind of thinking, not decentralization, but civic religion, to the new world. And these things were said in very, very explicitly religious ways. I think one of the best examples is uh, John Winthrop, right? He's the author of the famous City on a Hill speech, right? He coined the term city, that America was this sh shining city on a hill, which is something that a lot of people in America have heard of, but they're not aware of its source. And what he was talking about basically is America would be this nation that would redeem the world, that would bring justice and peace and liberty and harmony to all of God's children all across the world. So even back before America, the United States is even a thing, these people were talking about this type of thing. And I argue that even up until today, America has this kind of, kind of Messiah complex where, where we have to feel, we feel like we have to intervene in everything and save everybody so we don't, um, you know. Oh, yeah. So we, we feel like we have to intervene in everywhere and everything because America is the in indispensable nation and the, the world needs us to bring liberty and freedom and everything else to the rest of the world because nobody else can do it because, by God, we are the indispensable nation and we should lead, of course, which, like we said before, that means America should rule the world. But that, that, that type of idea, that's something that's very, very strong, not just in the neocons where we expect things like that, that kind of grandiose thinking, but also the neoliberal and basically kind of the bipartisan, nonpartisan foreign policy establishment. And since so people in America care so little about what their military does overseas, at least in a real way, that means that essentially these people have been able to rule the roost and essentially direct this massive juggernaut where they want it to go. And it's been so effective is that people now think that type of thing. I mean, I, I will never forget. I was blown away by this. I, I, I would see mainline Democrats who were supposed, that's supposed to be the anti-war party, right? They were, they were demanding the bombing of Syria and the removal of Bashar al-Assad because he's a bad guy and he's mean to his people. So we need to save the Syrian people from him. Number one, it's not a foregone conclusion that America invading a place militarily is going to make things better. Number two, how the fuck is that any of your business? I mean, seriously, the idea that, that, that this giant country should go sticking its nose in other countries' business that doesn't involve us is, is just, it's crazy. But that's what people believe. It is this messiah complex where America has to essentially throw its weight around and order other people around to protect other people. We've basically kind of taken on this role as the protector of the free world, even though usually this is just the window dressing and, and, and more often than not, the people that are actually kind of behind these operations don't give two shits about anything like that. They're just using it as convenient cover because people believe it. So we had John Winthrop's speech. I think that was in the 1640s or 50s, I believe. It was a Plymouth colony, so... The thing was, though, is that it didn't have any real reach outside of the New England colonies. Because what we have to keep in mind, we typically think of the colonies like all as one big unit. But there's actually 13 different states with 13 different cultures, 13 different ethnic makeups, and 13 different sensibilities, you know, kind of norms, traditions, customs, things like that. These colonies, a lot of them, yeah, we can group in, into like the New England colonies and the middle colonies and the southern ones. Yeah, we can certainly do that. But as far as culture goes... There's actually quite a bit of variance there in between 
you know, one or the other. So, um, therefore, like, the Winthrops of the world and the New Englanders, the Puritans, essentially, didn't have a whole lot of influence or control of anything outside of their own New England borders. So, it would go for centuries until there was any real, real development of the American civic religion. And yes, the American Revolution did bring some of these ideas into national existence, but it still remained a very, very limited form of civic religion. And that was largely in part because the only thing that you, if you're going to make a, a deity out of some part of the American system of government, it has to be the feds, right? It has to be the federal government because the rest of the state, the governments have no jurisdiction over the entire country. And if you're trying to make a universal religion for the entire nation, the federal government has to be involved there. And the truth of the matter is, back then in the, you know, 17, 1800s, most Americans had little to zero involvement or contact with the federal government. And, of course, that was only because a small percentage of men had the franchise back then when they were able to vote. And the only really other service you might use of the federal governments was mailing letters because, I mean, the federal government at that time had a couple thousand employees and, that was really it. So some time goes by, and the next big milestone in this kind of thinking was the Civil War. And of course, it was started not as a war to end slavery, which is the kind of the high school version you get. Instead, it was started as a war to save the Union, to preserve the Union, which if you listen to Lincoln's speeches about the Union, it, the Union takes on this kind of eternal, almost holy significance like it's it becomes a myth right the idea becomes bigger than the actual thing itself and this is uh this is like something the union to lincoln and a lot of people that at the time it was something that had always existed and that always would because the bonds of which could not be broken it was eternal but then of course the war fever kind of wore off in the first year or two, and the bodies started piling up. So Lincoln tied the war with ending slavery, which was a much more moral and just cause to a lot of people. It was much more high-minded than sim simply you know, changing some lines drawn on a map somewhere. Who really cares that much about that? And the interesting thing is that preachers on both sides of the war gave sermons about how their state was righteous, and the other states were, you know, and the other side were in defiance of God. And, of course, you can hear northern politicians and preachers, preacher men all over the place talking about how, um, you know, a good Christian votes Republican, a good Christian supports Lincoln and goes off to war and things like that. And there's an excellent book by a man named Harry Stout called Upon the Altar of the Nation. And I've got a, I've got a copy right here. I'm going to read a couple quotes from it real quick. Uh, but before I do, I want to say that there's something, a very important dynamic that kind of resonates throughout this book. I haven't quite finished it. I've only gotten about halfway. But essentially, the book is, um, the subtitle is A Moral History of the Civil War. And essentially, the book talks about things like the way the war was fought and the reason how. And America's kind of budding civil religion, I think, you can't separate the two. Because the, the reason the war was seen as a, a holy moral struggle, right, of good versus evil by both sides. And because of that 100,000% commitment to prosecuting this war, all, all types of things that would not normally be accepted were. And a great example is I know for our modern eyes and especially for 
modern military veterans or even students in military history, uh, something that's kind of hard to understand for us is that the, the European tradition, going back to the Middle Ages essentially, had always been one, for the most part, of limited warfare, right? Two armies marching out into the field, fighting each other, and one side eventually surrenders, the commander gives over his sword, and everybody gets to go home. That's it. There's no massive prisoner of war camps for the most part. There's no deliberate targeting of civilian infrastructure or civilians themselves. Nothing like that. So we have this kind of limited sense of almost gentlemanly warfare. And you start to see that really collide in Europe in the First World War, where we have, you know, we see, we, we see the cuirassiers in France, right? These men dressed in, in these very brightly covered plumed uniforms, wearing metal breastplates with swords, riding out on horseback and charging machine gun emplacements. It's a very, very fascinating mix of old world meets new. And part of that old world meets new is limited warfare versus total warfare. Well, of course, total warfare won out because we had the British blockading German cities and civilians starving to death. We had the Germans you know, committing atrocities in Belgium, however much that was overblown, it still did happen. But in America, that acceptance and transformation had actually happened a fair bit earlier, almost 50 to 60 years, or I guess almost 70 years earlier. So I'm going to read a quote from Harry Stout's book. Quote, The phrase total war, like just war or immoral behavior, is vigorously contested, but I believe necessary. The term total war did not exist during the Civil War, but I employ it anyway because taking it into account its historical relativity is important. Why? Because I simply cannot come up with a better term. Words like hard or destructive are often used to distinguish the Civil War from even greater tragedies of the 20th century, but they do not penetrate the moral center of the Civil War, which I take to be a war waged deliberately on a civilian population's with the full knowledge and compliance of commanders running all the way to the top. In this sense, the spirit of total war emerged quite clearly by 1864 and prepared Americans for the even more devastating total wars they would pursue in the 20th century. In terms of the civilian victims, North and South, the Civil War differed so profoundly in scale from earlier American conflicts that participants could only understand and experience it as something totally new and unprecedented. Of course, total war in 19th century America describes something very different and less severe than total wars of the 20th or 21st century. There exists no equivalent of Dresden or Coventry or Tokyo or Rwanda in the Civil War, but the 19th century participants experienced their war as total. If, God forbid, a total war in the 21st century were to claim losses, um, were to claim Hundreds of millions of casualties that dwarfed losses in World Wars I and II, it would not mean that 20th century wars were no longer total. The same is true of the Civil War, and attempts to minimize its destruction, military and civilian, reflect the historian's cardinal sin of anachronism, literally judging the past by the standards of the present rather than on his own terms. At the same time that the Civil War developed from a limited war into a total war, the moral justification changed in the North from a limited war for union to a moral crusade for freedom and abolition. Unlike secession, slavery is not morally ambiguous. At first a background topic, as the initially unacknowledged cause of the war, slavery would go ever more powerful in its foreground throughout the war. With emancipation, it would represent Lincoln's inner accelerator for mounting a total war on the Confederacy, soldier and civilian alike. And with abolition, it would provide an unambiguous moral triumph. The justice of abolition and the freedom of four million dictates 
that any moral history of slavery unconditionally conclude that the right side won, no matter what the casualties and sacrifices. Lincoln was right when he said his second inaugural address that if God willed that the war continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsmen 250 years of unrequited toll shall be sunk and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. So it still must be, quote, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So we have this, this kind of view of into why. And Professor C.J. from Dangerous History Podcast, one of my favorite things he said is he talks about the First World War in very much the same way, where the reason that these wars never existed, it wasn't because, you know, political leaders were any more gentlemanly in, in days past than they are now. No, it's because they literally could not get people to engage in that degree of bloodshed and slaughter. The governments of days past did not have the kind of the, the power to, uh, to kind of coerce people into fighting for these long terms, to, for this bloody action. Because eventually people would just say, all right, screw it, we're not fighting anymore. And the state never had the, the manpower to actually force them to stay in the fight. So what really limited these earlier conflicts was not the type of hardware. It wasn't the fact they were fought with pikes and muzzle-loading weapons and things like that. No, it was the software. This is what CJ talks about in the First World War series he did a long time ago. It wasn't the fact that we have, you know, cannon, rifled, you know, rifled artillery, indirect fire. It wasn't the fact that there's poison gas and machine guns. It wasn't the hardware. It was the software. It was public schooling. It was propaganda. It was all these different things that actually, you know, emboldened the populations long enough and strong enough for them to keep fighting even after all these horrific casualties have been, have been mounted and drawn. So in very much the same way, you have that same thing in America in the 1800s in the Civil War, and that is in no small part due to the civic religion. And it's not just the fact that we have this religious aspect of the state being taken on. No, also you have the religious authorities very much getting in on the action. The clergy preachermen in the North and the South essentially were basically cheerleaders of their respective states. And it's really kind of tragic because, like we talked about in the atomic bomb episode last, um, you know, last episode, is that there were a lot of faith leaders that came out after the Second World War and condemned America for the atomic bombing. But for whatever reason, preacher men in the North and the South during the Civil War cheered on the conflict when they should have been a voice of reason. They should have been the voice of restraint and compassion and forgiveness. But no, instead they were just bloodthirsty warmongers. But the, strangely enough, the majority of Protestant clergymen in the North anyway had typically, they had a tradition of actually kind of being very unfriendly to this kind of reflexive, patriotic, rah-rah America type rhetoric from the pulpit, from sermons on Sundays. But that changed during the Civil War. And instead of, you know, kind of being able to put the brakes on this whole conflict, which they probably could have because of the importance of organized religion back then. Instead, what they did is they, they stepped on the gas and they actually gave the divine stamp of approval to these wars being carried out in the North and the South. I'm continuing on from Harry Stout. Quote, while few judged or questioned the recourse to total war, many saw the, in the unprecedented destruction of lives and property something mystical taking place. What we today might call the birthing of a fully functional, truly national American civil religion. 
It was a meaning difficult for anyone to articulate at the time, yet some, including soldiers, clergy, and most notably Abraham Lincoln, began to posit a moral high ground in the creation of a powerful national or civil religion. As the Civil War progressed onto increasingly eroded moral ground, something transformative simultaneously took place that would render the war the defining phenomenon in American history. Patriotism itself became sacralized to the point that it enjoyed co-equal or even superior status to conventional denominations of faith. Ever since Robert Bella's seminal essay on civil religion, published in 1967, American soldiers have a, have a Amer, sorry, American scholars have awakened to a religion of American patriotism that exists a long time alongside traditional religious faith. American civil religion, Bella observed, is quote an understanding of the American experience in the light of ultimate and universal reality. At best, it is a genuine apprehension of universal and transcendent religious reality as seen in, or one could almost say, as revealed through the experience of the American people. The historian of religion, Roland Sherrill, defines civil religion this way. American civil religion is a form of de devotion, outlook, and commitment that deeply and widely binds the citizens of the nation together with ideas they possess and express about the sacred nature, the sacred ideals, and the sacred character and sacred meanings of their country. Though lacking transcendent revelations akin to the Abrahamic faith, the religion of a sacralized patriotism enjoys a complete repository of sacred rituals and this. In fact, the American civil religion borrows so heavily from the language and cadences of traditional faith, many Americans see no conflict or distinction between the two. Many Americans equate dying for their country with dying for their faith. In America's civil religion, serving country can be co-equal with serving God. The evidence for an ongoing American religion are American civil religion are ubiquitous. The Bible prevails as America's most popular book, and often patriotism draws on familiar bib biblical themes to refer to not the church and its believers, but the nation and its citizens. Exodus, chosen people, promised land, and new Israel all represent staple metaphors in American speech and letters that express America's messianic mission to be a redeemer nation. And I think in this light, it's no coincidence that, that because of this kind of religious fervor around the state during the Civil War, that Abraham Lincoln declared the first national Thanksgiving holiday in November of 1863. And people tend to think typically that the, the Thanksgiving holiday goes all the way back to the Puritans. No. It didn't. There was no national Thanksgiving holiday. Yeah, it existed in New England somewhat, but there was no national one until 1863. And that actually surprised me when I learned it too. So for the Civil War, right, you have all this blood, all these dead young men. They could not have died for something as simple as lines on a map. The American public would not have allowed it. No, their sacrifice, and that's what it was in people's eyes, had to be holy, had to be sacralized, right? It had to be virtuous. So therefore combining abolition of slavery with the idea that the union is what really makes America so special that, you know, this idea that people said that if we allow the South to go its own way, America as we know it would cease to exist and become like Europe with constant wars. Preacher men said that, and so did Abraham Lincoln. And generals became the warrior priests who were responsible for spilling the sacrificial blood of American soldiers. And that phrase right there is not a direct quote, but the idea comes from Harry Stout's Upon the Altar of the Nation. I just don't have my finger on the page of it right now. 
So this is the birth of something we would recognize today as our modernized, as the American civic religion. This idea that the, the nation is holy, has a holy crusade and mission, and therefore everything it does has the approval of God. However, this of course was in a much more overtly religious time. Um, something, some things have changed though between then and now, and what we're seeing, the next big milestone for this of course is the progressive era. And the progressive era still, still had a lot of that kind of religion and statism mixed together where you had things like the social gospel, Christian socialism. A lot of these people were progressives that believed that they could reform the state. They could use the state in order to achieve positive outcomes for people and in order to make society more fair and just and things like that. Now, of course, I mean, as we know, the big business interests, they had coupled with the you know, religious reformers and whatnot, hand in glove to try to destroy all the competition. And a lot of progressives just like went right along with it because they needed the financial and kind of political backing. But with that said, one thing that changed the progressive era is you had a, a, a secularization of the same American civic religion. And you had a lot of the God references being replaced with the state references or things about the state. And th therefore, the kind of the American civic religion was morphed once again, and it really started to take off in a much more meaningful way in the progressive era itself. And I'm going to just list a few things, since I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, that you started to see during the progressive era that were very clear indications of the civic religion. All right, so, uh, sorry, had to take a break. Um, where were we? Okay, so... We're talking about the Progressive Era, and since we're talking about the Progressive Era and the civil religion, I think there's a book we have to mention, and it's called uh, The Tragedy of U.S. Foreign Policy. It's guy, by a guy named um, Walter McDougall. I, I think it's Walter. His last name is definitely McDougall. But he starts that book with the quote, uh, a nation ought to know itself, which, of course, that's from Socrates. Uh, that's his injunction at the Temple of Delphi. And during the Progressive Era, what you saw is that America, the, the country that used to, quote-unquote, know itself, has changed so fundamentally. Its place in the world, how it sees itself, its internal government structure, it's changed so much that the civil religion of America has had to change to accommodate itself. And in it, it's been turned into different... It's been, that civil religion has been turned to purposes other than, you know, saving the union and, and, and the idea that America is supposed to redeem the world through liberty and leading by example. And that was like, if you wanted to draw anything good out of this whole civil religion tradition, it would be the idea that America as the city on the hill, like, uh, like John, John, I want to say John Redman, but I, I just said it a minute ago. The Puritan dude, geez, can't remember for the life of me. I'm not looking back in the notes here. Screw it, I'm driving. But anyway, so... The idea that maybe if we're going to have any type of civil religion at all, which I think is still very questionable, but the idea that, well, America could be an example for other nations because of its commitment to self-ownership, personal liberty, private property, respect for the rule of law, like things that people will generally agree is what make a prosperous society. And, you know, socialists might not, but screw them. Anyway, so, so if we take that as the original meaning, right, of the civil religion, 
And even like, I, I know that most of us that are listening would probably disagree with this, but it is, I think there is no doubt, at least to this part, that the Civil War had a huge part in ending slavery immediately. Now, you can say like, well, the means employed to, to that end are very questionable and very immoral, and I would, I would totally agree with you. However, though that still maybe might be a continuation of that idea of America bringing liberty to people, or, you know, even though it's a much more violent expression of that same kind of idea. However, though, when we get to the progressive era, like pretty much all bets are off. Because what's happened is that America's policymakers and America's politicians just flat out traded liberty and commitment to a humble foreign policy for power. And to do so, they had to essentially reinvent the American civil religion. Which, of course, that's the main thesis of that book, The Tragedy of American Foreign Policy, Tragedy of U.S. Foreign Policy. And McDougall, his, his basic thesis is that like, a lot of the symbols and the totems, the holy places, the scriptures, a lot of that stuff in the American civil religion has remained the same, but their meaning has been changed. And he has this quote in a book where he says, you know, they've been emptied of their content and robbed of their power to contain destructive aspirations and behavior. And he says that's the tragedy of American foreign policy because instead of promoting, um, you know, limited government, liberty, uh, let's see what else, private property, kind of these type of things, uh, a, a non-interventionist foreign policy, peace and honest friendship with all nations type thing. Instead, uh, American civil religion now promotes what McDougal, what McDougal ends up calling delusional and magical thinking for a world of make-believe. Um, in which all that is required is citizens and their leaders is a vacuous faith in, in faith or faith in America. With, but the problem is that America doesn't really have some type of stable identity. And because essentially we have just all that's required is faith in this kind of amorphous blob, which it ends up being whatever the politicians say it is, what that ends up happening is that America has really, starting the progressive era, begin this aggressive, imperialist, interventionist, expansionist, nation-building foreign policy, right? And if you read the Founders' writings, which there's another thing about the American civil religion, religion the fact that we call these guys the Founding Fathers, has, and we have, especially conservatives, have all the, almost this religious reverence for these guys, like George Washington. I, hell, I remember when I went through school, I was told that George Washington never told a lie. Who the hell has never told a lie? Seriously. So the idea that having this nation-building, interventionist, expansionist, imperialist, aggressive foreign policy, it's, it's a betrayal of everything America was supposed to be, literally everything. But because the American civil religion has been stretched and disordered and, and, and basically molded to fit what the policymakers wanted, essentially the same symbols, ideas, ideals, like still carry on to this day. And nobody's really noticed, except for, I mean, libertarians and maybe a couple others, but we still have conservatives, you know, running around talking about how they, they believe in liberty and personal liberty and they support individual freedoms. Meanwhile, they're, they're, you know, racking up debt like there's no tomorrow and they're passing the biggest spending bills and they're, they're burdening generations that aren't even born yet with this debt they'll never be able to pay off. And that stuff has real consequences. It means that people will never, ever live the lives that they could have otherwise. They will never be able to 
achieve that American dream. Hell, I'm going through right now trying to buy a house. But houses in, in, in our area, they are so far out of reach. Like they've, most of the houses we've looked at have gone up $100,000 in value in the last year. Same houses, same schools, same school district, same everything. But it's a, you know, it's just the fact that there's all this debt and this easy credit means that, that it's a buyer's market or a seller's market. People, house prices keep skyrocketing up and up and up. And essentially, that these same people that talk about how they believe in individual liberty and limited government are the same people that have, have essentially thrown this debt burden on your back and mine. And that debt burden is why we can't afford stuff and live the lives that we should. So this, this betrayal of the founder's vision was started really, I mean, really Abraham Lincoln started it, but it, it got put in overdrive in 1898, right? Spanish-American War, the acquisition of Cuba as a colony, or not Cuba, but the Philippines as a colony, and Woodrow Wilson getting America into World War I in 1917. You know, saying that we need to make the world safe for democracy, right? Total betrayer of the founders' vision of a humble foreign policy. The founders who talked about how war is the biggest danger to public liberty because it comprises the germ of every other. Armies, debts, and taxes. I used to say that quote all the damn time. It was James Madison. So if you go back and look at this, right, uh, another way to look at civil religion is University of Toronto um, political... A science professor, a guy named Ronald Beignet, he defines a civil religion as, quote, appropriation of religion by politics for its own purposes. And yes, that is true. The state does essentially co-opt and marshal religious groups like the preacher men in the Civil War, but also the religious right, the evangelical right, and their supporting of Donald Trump and things like that. Yes, they do. They are able to to marshal those resources to support what the state wants to do. But there's another side of that, right? Civil religion doesn't have to be necessarily religious at all. Now, libertarians, us, will look at it as statism as a religion because it's a belief in something that doesn't really, you know, isn't readily apparent. And I'm not saying all religions are bullshit. I don't know, obviously. I'm kind of agnostic on that issue. But the idea that that requires faith, right? You can't prove that America is the, you know, the the home of liberty and democracy, and if America falls, the rest of the world falls. You can't prove that, but people that imbibe America's civil religion certainly believe it. But instead, civil religion can be a set of principles or maybe even affirmations that are put on a pedestal up to the point where they become dogma. They become a civic faith meant to bind a group of people in a country together. And we can have secular saints, pretty much, really. You know, people like John F. Kennedy, John McCain now, people like Barack Obama is going to be one day. Um, holidays, religious documents, and, and these type of things, they can serve as principles or maybe even dogmas. So in this type of idea, the civil religion and its, its kind of symbols, totems, holy places, whatnot, they don't have to become idolatrous, right? They don't need to be elevated to the, to the level of actual religious faith and fervor. At least that's what happens in theory. But in practice, it becomes something very, very different, doesn't it? Because in America, what's happened instead is that these, these two types of civil religion, one is the co-opting of the state by the state of religious forces, and the other one is the state's 
kind of mythology taking on a religious aspect itself, they've been kind of mixed together. And essentially what happens um, is that civil religion becomes like this kind of two-way street where religion flows into the state and the state flows into religion. And you can see this every time America's gotten into a war. And as a matter of fact, war becomes the most successful way of inserting civic, civil religious kind of themes and whatnot into American society, into the brains of American, you know, Americans. The minds, I mean. And every single one of America's wars has, has basically amped up the civil religion to, to meet the demands of U.S. policy objectives. And if you go back to the war, the Spanish-American War, right? You can go look at things, older things like George Washington's Farewell Address, which was an early kind of component of American civic religion. And everything Washington said not to do, America did. And McDougall's point in this book is essentially that this is to be expected, and he says this, quote, but the civil religion is always more or less in flux because each generation must reimagine the national God who blesses whatever foreign policy posture Americans, or at least their elites, believe the times demand. Behind all the tectonic shifts in rhetoric, economics, and strategy, therefore lurks a mystical, magical, shape-shifting civil religion whose orthodoxies can turn into heresies and whose heresies can turn into new orthodoxies. And this is exactly what happened in the progressive era. Um, and McDougall actually makes the same point, too. He, he talks about how William McKinley really started the... He, he basically divides the American civil religion into three kind of periods. The first one was the classical one, which was George Washington to about, oh, about Taft or something like that, about late 1800s. And then you have the next period, the progressive civil religion from William McKinley, with the culmination being in Woodrow Wilson. And then you have the millennial civil religion that started to um, emerge in the 1990s and really kind of it's changed and maneuvered a lot, and it's not as obvious as it used to be under presidents like George W. Bush and Barack Obama. And then I think that in some ways it's been really revived by Donald Trump because it's this, this book was published on, I think it was 2016, like pretty close to Donald Trump's election. But if you go look at Trump's campaign, you know, he doesn't talk about the Bible a whole lot, and he didn't even hit the city on the hill speech that Ronald Reagan made, but he certainly did kind of have this general idea of faith in America, about how we need to get our jobs back and have faith in our manufacturers here, and, and these types of themes right there, and of course, plenty of worship and praise of the military and the police and these other types of groups, which is like another key component of American civil religion. But then you go look at his his uh, inauguration, and it turned it it became a civic religion. What's the word here? I don't even know. Just just a just a display of civic religion, where you just had all these kinds of of themes just kind of thrown out there, like we're gonna win again, and we're gonna bring our jobs back, and we're gonna do all these things where there's no real concrete plan to do so, but it's just faith in America is all you need. And even maybe if you wanted to be a little less charitable, you could argue maybe it's just faith in one person, maybe like a cult of personality. That's also a, a significant fact. Now, it'd be interesting to see what happens after the Trump era to the kind of the right 
half of American politics, whether they revert back to the way they were or if, or if Trump has like irreparably changed the GOP, which might not be such a bad thing, honestly. But anyway, so if we go back to the progressive era, right, and we're talking about where all this stuff started. Shut the fuck I hate this car. Anyway, so I'm driving a rental car right now, and it keeps trying to yell at me to brake even though I don't need to. But anyway, so if you look during the progressive era, like this stuff just got – it became less of the first, which was like the, the religious, overtly religious civil religion, and became more of the, the civil religion of the state itself where – you have things that become very religious, and um, like Woodrow Wilson obviously is the biggest one. And Woodrow Wilson was a devout Protestant; um, he was a Presbyterian, actually. Which uh, have there's like certain kind of schools of thought in Presbyterian, um, Presbyterian, jeez, denomination that are very kind of statist. Um, that's the religious tradition I come from. Not all of them are like that, but anyway. So here's the thing: is that he came in and gave all these grandiose speeches talking about how God is on America's side and, and we have this duty to bring global democracy to the oppressed peoples and to bring the light of freedom and all these things like that. And in his speeches, I mean, they were just all over the place with this kind of, kind of commentary. And Wilson's speeches and ideas, they were not original in his by any means. If you think about what was happening like the 25 to 30 years before World War I actually broke out, it was the social gospel and progressivism and these type of things. And these have been on the rise since then. And Woodrow Wilson basically just was the face job for this entire movie. Hell, even the League of Nations, that idea was, was an old progressive idea that had been very popular in kind of the waspy Anglo-American liberal circles at that time. But he did put a face on this whole thing, this, this idea um, – and really, this is largely a progressive era thing. It's to make it's to make the secular state holy, to declare its purpose righteous, and to essentially to to basically have it lay claim to all power as its right, as its duty, as this holy nation. And you know, Wilson, of course, he was well known for saying things like you know some of his better known quotes. Well, not that well known because he's essentially just an obscure blob except for his existence. But he said things like, America is privileged to spend her blood, talking about the First World War. And um, saying things like, God helping her, she can do no other, talking about the First World War. Which, of course, was that's like a, you know, that's a very direct reference to Martin Luther. <clears throat> so, yeah, Wilson, obviously, like, uh, even McDougal refers to him as the high priest of American civil religion, progressive civil religion. So progressivism, if you want to... It's just, that's the main kind of theme is they just try to deify and sanctify the state to make what's otherwise secular holy and religious. And the progressive era, you see all kinds of other things this was done with. The uh, Pledge of Allegiance, are, right? Of course, that's, that's a pretty well-known one. Obviously, every school child knows the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, now, of course, they made it slightly less of a religious overtone because under God is now optional, which, by the way, if you didn't know this, under God was not in the original Pledge of Allegiance. I don't think it got added until like 1952 or something like that, which is almost 70 or 80 years after it was written. And of course, I'm sure a lot of you know that the Pledge of Allegiance was, was written by two socialists. And these guys were, or Francis Bellamy and his brother, but these guys were what they would call Christian socialists, right? Which of course I think is a contradiction in terms, but that's just me. But of course, being the good capitalists that they actually were, had written a 
uh, pledge to encourage, like to try to encourage more people to buy flags, especially schools. That was their big thing. They stood to profit a lot of money if this, all the schools started adopting this pledge and, you know, buying more flags and whatnot. So that's, that's where it came from. Then, of course, I think another kind of, uh, you know, piece of, piece of histo- historical, I don't even know what the word is. I can't even think right now. But another piece of historiography, I, what the hell? That's not even the right word. Another, another piece of information, geez, we'll just use that, that I think a lot of people are going to know is that, of course, the, bell, the, the pledge had a salute, too. And the original salute was a stiff right arm up in the air about a 45-degree angle, a.k.a. the Sea Heil. And this was known as the Bellamy salute for the longest time. However, though, um, once the Second World War rolled around, it came pretty clear that that was no longer acceptable, so it was dropped. But yeah, the Pledge of Allegiance, right? We have these school children pledging their allegiance to something that they don't even know what the hell it is. And they don't even know what they're doing. But it's recited in this very, it's almost like an incantation, right? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. That's, it sounds like a religious prayer if you sit there and break it down. But that was put in schools during the progressive era. And then you had Mount Rushmore, too, which was really a little post-progressive era, but it was designed and it was certainly built in the same spirit of the progressive era where you, can't, you cannot imagine America pre-progressive era having enormous totems and monuments to, to dead politicians. You just can't. I think a lot of early Americans would have been really creeped out by it, and a couple of might have even seen it as idolatry of dead political figures. But the progressive era, of course, made the state the all-important force in society. And it's the same thing. This is about the same time where we started seeing uh, dead politicians being put on coinage, which, of course, the first one being Abraham Lincoln and then shortly followed by FDR not too long after he died. And this replaced a lot of, like, a lot of um, American coinage before then had kind of generic pictures of, like, Indians or uh, was supposed to be Lady Liberty, but it kind of looked like the god goddess Mercury. So it was called the Mercury Dime for the longest time. So there's a, I think it's George Carlin. He talks about, he's got this bit where he talks about uh, politicians on, on money. And he says, like, when you have dead politicians being put on money, it's time to start getting worried. When you start seeing live politicians get put on money, then it's time to run. And I, I always thought that, I think that was Carlin, but that, that bit certainly stands to, you know, stands to reason to me. And it, it is very, very disturbing to see just the, the place in this pantheon of saints. Essentially, like some of these politicians, they become canonized as saints, right? Abraham Lincoln, of course, is the most obvious one, right? He died to save the Union. And then, of course, the, the big one of all of them is the Lincoln Memorial, which was finished in 1922. And this is, it's literally a temple, and it says so on the inscription. In this temple, as in the hearts of the people for whom he saved the Union, the memory of Abraham Lincoln is enshrined forever. Right? And it's very stately. If you go look at it, I mean, I don't know how many people in my audience have ever been to D.C., but it's got these enormous columns, right? And this enormous stone sculpture, these huge steps that go up to it. It's very, it's very stately and regal. And, of course, like so many of these massive monuments, they're designed to make you feel small and insignificant. Like you, then you have to have these great men leading you, otherwise you're going to be lost. But 
It is, it is essentially, it is the, the Dome of the Rock of Washington, D.C., which is Mecca. I guess a better, I guess a better example would be Masjid al-Haram, or, um, which is the sacred, sacred mosque in, in actual Mecca itself. But it is interesting, right? So you'll see tourists. I remember going to D.C. when I was a kid. Uh, I think it was an eighth-grade trip. I think that's a really common thing in American public schools is having a Washington, D.C. trip for late middle schoolers slash early high schoolers. And it's, it's, if you think about it, it's really interesting why they have you do that, right? Because if you see tourists in Washington, D.C., they almost, it's almost like they, they have to go to all these holy sites, and it's almost like they're making, they're, they're Muslims ma- making the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca, right? Where we go and we see the seat of power, and we see where all these great men have lived and done this amazing work. And then, of course, you go to the National Mall, right? What's on the National Mall? Well, tons of war memorials. Right, these are these are where the sacrifice have their memories, you know, enshrined forever. And that's what it is. It's uh, you know, veterans like you know, soldiers like when we get killed in wars, what do people say about us so often? Oh, he died for your freedom. Is that not like how far away from that is he died for your sins? Is it really? Because you can't prove that any of my friends died for anybody's freedom. The, the idea was ridiculous in itself. My, my friends died over fucking profits for oil companies and fucking geopolitics. That's it. Nobody's freedom's over there. But people have this, it's almost like a, like a religious kind of incantation where like these people that have been killed in America's wars, because that's what it is, right? These are martyrs, right? That is exactly why all these memorials are built because... Every single war America had to fight was, one, totally necessary, and two, totally justified. So anybody that died in those wars, therefore, died doing a very good thing. Or at least that's what the, the religious aspect is made to make you feel. There's no, if you go to war memorials or monuments or veterans museums, there's, no, there's never any questioning of what was done. It's always presented kind of neutrally, like, ah, well, this is what happened, and it's really above our pay grade for us to decide whether or not all the sacrifice is worth it. We're just presenting what happened. And that's essentially kind of the, the what you get, unless it's like you're talking about World War II or something like that, where it's like very clear that it was a justified war, it was fighting against fascism, and it was nothing but a good thing, case closed the end, right? And that's just it. People kind of roam around D.C., and they have their little tour guides and handbooks, and they take pictures, and they kind of speak in hushed tones about these amazing places that, that they're going to that, that, you know, deserve our respect and shit like that. And it's... Uh, you know, that, like the Lincoln Memorial, of course, was the culmination of the progressive era as far as these monuments goes. And, of course, these things, they are all idols, right? They're golden calves. Lincoln is a worship figure for especially the American political establishment, but even American school kids and regular Americans. Abraham Lincoln's still, like, one of the most popular presidents in the United States, um, at least, like, historically ranked. So, you know, you have all these other things, too, like the congressional chamber, right? All these areas, and even, even like local buildings, like courthouses and whatnot, where you have number one, you have to go through security because it's such a, a valuable, important place. Like they can't have anybody dare attacking anybody in there. Of course, it's, you know you don't have to go to security through, go through Walmart. Just saying, but anyway, um, look like look at all the pomp about you know criminal trials, right? The judge sits above everybody else. He has a special costume on. And then when he walks in, the bailiff says, all rise. And everybody has to stand up, right? And salute his holiness so he can render a verdict on us mere mortals. 
and of course, this type of thing is is magnified times a thousand with the Supreme Court, right? Where they have to go and burn incense and read read the dregs of tea leaves to tell us what the Constitution says, because I have trouble uh, figuring out what shall not be infringed means for myself. I have no idea. I need help with that. So we'll close out with with saying this, right? Is what is a religion, right? And what are some tendencies of one? And I want to ask if we can maybe come up with any ideas, and I'm sure you can come up with more on your own, if the American civic religion has any of these things. Uh, so number one is hymns, right? Christian churches have hymns we sing. And of course, the American civic religion has these special sacred songs too. God bless the USA. You know, I'm proud to be an American. Uh, the national anthem. My country, tis of thee. These are you know, holy songs, essentially. And then, of course, every religion has mythology, whether it's ancient Greeks with Zeus and Mars and all those kind of characters, or if it's, or if it's you know, Christian, the Christian tradition, right? Jesus had, Jesus turned, you know, um, a loaf of bread into, into a thousand loaves, or I can't even remember the story now, Jesus, <laughs> and loaves, and, loaves and wine and fish for everybody, right? So this mythology, we also have it in American history, right? Simple, we have this very grossly simplified history, no critical look at what, what happened or what was done, whether things are right or, right or wrong. Everything in these periods happened because of the great men, right? The reason America won World War II was because of people like Douglas MacArthur and, and Chester Nimitz, right? It had nothing to do with the grunts actually fighting the war on the ground. And that's just it. World War II, right? Good, clean war. America, democracy, freedom, fighting fascism and Nazism. It was the free world versus the authoritarians, and the authoritarians lost. Done deal, right? Same thing with the dropping of the atomic bomb. We just did two hour, three hours on that last time. And then how about a sacred text or a scripture, right? I mean, we have the, you know, the Christian Bible, right? The Bhavad Gita, the Torah, okay? How about in American civil religion, how about the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution? And just like most Christians have never read the Bible, most Americans have never read the Constitution. But Christians have an idea of what the Bible is supposed to say, or at least what they want it to say, and so do Americans when it comes to the Constitution. Then how, and, of course, there's other ones, too. There's you know speeches and missives, essays written by politicians. These type of things make it into like the American canon. Um, and then about shrines are holy places. We just talked about a bunch of them, these little, little temples, right, in, in Washington, D.C. And these are, like, they're golden calves. They are idols. That's exactly what they are. And I want to say, too, like, if you are a conventionally religious person, I don't care if you are or not. That's your business. But if you are, this type of stuff should make you very angry. It infuriates me, right? If you take the Ten Commandments seriously, right, you shall have no gods before me. Well, what are you doing when you're worshiping the state? And that's exactly what that is. That is, it is worshiping the state. When you are holding up these great men, quote unquote, on this pedestal and thinking that they are, they are so much more wonderful than they actually were. That is, that is the, that is idolatry, right? Same thing when people exalt the military or, you know, the presidency or these other offices or the federal government, that is a straight up idolatry. And so, therefore, like, right, no king but Christ. That's what it's supposed to be. But when you, when you bow down to these politicians and you, you accept their authority as ordained by God, as a lot of Christian kind of statists do, then what you're doing is you're, you, are, you are placing the authority over you instead of to God where it belongs to a man, just a mortal man. And that's just it. Like, 
the state is a rebellion against God. It says so in the Bible, right? That's the entire point of books like 1 Samuel and Romans and things like that. So worshiping the state is rebellion against God. And if you're not religious, then this type of stuff should creep you out too because if you are like anti-religious or if you're, you know, any type of like militant atheist, well, the idea that the state is co-opting these religious symbols and traditions and things that you believe are superstitions, then you combine that with the use of force on people, then you should be even more disturbed and revolted and disgusted. But unfortunately, for some reason, it seems like atheists are the most fervent statists I know. And it's funny as I know people that they'll laugh at you and, and make fun of you if, you if you say that you have a deity, like if you are religious. But they treat the state most of the time like it is a god. They'll, they'll treat it like it has some kind of holy powers that it's somehow by taking an oath of office, a regular man gets turned into a superhuman being and somehow the state is able to do all these things that mere mortals acting voluntarily just can't do. And um, of course, you know, a great name for these people is state theists, which is something I always appreciated. But anyway, so let's keep going, right? How about holy totems, right? Harry Stout talks about this in, uh, in um, Upon the Altar of the Nation, right? Old glory, right? The, the American flag. It is something that people are willing to kill and to die for, right? Soldiers are buried in flags. And what's funny about me, even as this anarcho-capitalist, right, I still kind of want to get my discharge wiped so when I die, I can have a flag-draped coffin. And I don't know why, but I still want it, even though I shouldn't. It's very, very strange and discomforting. It's maybe it's some of that lingering statism that we all have. But anyway, so look at, right, we have, for my own part, I've, I've said often before that I'm not a violent person. Matter of fact, the most violence I've ever done in my life was why I had an American flag patch on my shoulder sleeve. But having that flag patch on your shoulder sleeve empowers you. It gives you superhuman, super moral powers to, to dispense violence without consequences, without morality, right? And then, of course, in recent times, look what happens when somebody burns the flag. People lose their shit especially right-wingers. Uh, same thing with kneeling at the national anthem, right? These football players. I got a former boss who said that he wanted to shoot Colin Kaepernick in the face for kneeling before the national anthem. And I'm just sitting there wondering, like, man, where is all this anger coming from? Like, why are you so irrationally pissed off about that? When really, according to you, I should be the one that's furious, right? Because I fought to defend that flag, didn't I? But somehow I'm the one that doesn't give a shit, and you are. And that's very revealing about, about the amount of anger that people have over burning the flag. And, and you'll hear it, people say it, you're desecrating the flag, right? Well, what is desecration? Des, des, desecretation, right? If you break it down, what it means is literally stomping, trampling on the divine. When you desecrate a temple, you are walking into it and destroying it, right? And it's very interesting, the word choice there. It's very revealing, actually. And then, of course, we have um, dogmas, right? America is the best country ever. America, it, we have the most freedom here. You have to vote. Voting is important. It's your right. It's your duty. America is the indispensable nation, right? These things that you cannot prove, but you, can, you, have, you just have to take as an article of faith. And if you don't, you're a heretic. 
And usually when people say things like America is the greatest country ever, like they usually cannot admit that America has faults and problems, has warts. And that's what so much of this, this boils down to, the civil religion. It's a whitewashing of the problems in America because me personally, yeah, I think living here is pretty fucking awesome. And there is really, right now, there's no place I'd rather live. But that doesn't mean that America doesn't have problems. And I really, I do have allegiance to the concept of America, of a, of a, a, of a nation that is, you know, founded on the principles of self-determination, self-government, individual liberty, this type of thing. But I have no loyalty to the American state whatsoever. There's a huge difference there. But that's just it is that you're not, if you criticize America at all, like you are a heretic and you must be banished. Or how about the, one of my favorite dogmas? They're fighting for your freedom. They're fighting for your right to criticize the government. How, how many times you heard that one? And know that it's utter bullshit, but you have to believe it. And then, of course, um, how about the profession of faith, right? The idea of sacrifice. The profession of faith, the little yellow ribbons that used to be on cars everywhere. I support my troops. My daughter's in the Marine Corps. My, son's in, my son is a U.S. Army soldier. And then the idea of sacrifice, right? So the greatest martyrs in, American, in the American kind of tradition are soldiers, right? I'm driving on the freeway right now. And I've passed several. I passed several signs that say this is the Kenneth J. Lamont Memorial Bridge or whatever, and it's always like some dude who was killed in a war somewhere, and they always show their rank and everything. But it's like these are the people, right? They they sacrificed, they gave the ultimate sacrifice to save you. That's the idea, essentially, right? They are martyrs, dying for the nation. And then, of course, religions have rites and rituals, right? Christianity has communion or um, Lent or these other things. And how about, I mean, there's a bazillion of these different ones, but, you know, two easy ones I can think of is the, the opening of the General Assembly of the Ohio House. Like, there's all this pomp and circumstance. And then inaugurations, right? People getting sworn in. Number one, like swearing in at MEPS where you hold up your right hand and now suddenly you're a, you're a person entrusted with dispensing of violence by the United States government. Well, not quite yet, but you will be soon. And then, of course, also, how about the inauguration of the president? There are very few more explicitly religious holidays I can think of where we take this mere mortal man, right, just a regular person like the rest of us, or maybe, honestly, a shittier person than the rest of us, but we take him, and then he holds up his right hand, puts it on a Bible, swears a few words, and now all of a sudden he's entrusted in, with the power to use the entire might and force of the U.S. government unilaterally if he wants to. And he's entrusted to make all these decisions for 330 million people, which is, you know, like, if that's not a magic spell, if that's not an incantation, a ritual, like, I don't know what is. And then, of course, religious holidays, right? Thanksgiving, which has taken on a very status flavor in recent years. Veterans Day, the 4th of July, Memorial Day, Flag Day, all these types of things right? Holy days, even though a lot of Americans, they might talk about them as being holy, but they don't actually do like a lot of kind of holy things considered on that day, because otherwise I wouldn't have so much to bitch about at Memorial Day if I actually felt like people were aware of the number of U.S. soldiers that had died for stupid fucking reasons in pointless wars. And how about speeches, right? Sermons, speeches. The crisis confidence speech from Jimmy Carter, the uh, axis of evil speech, George W. Bush, Ronald Reagan's City on a Hill speech. 
these things become sermons. And there's, I think it's, I think it is upon the altar of the nation where Harry Stout talks about how sometimes America um, has its president become the high priest, like Ronald Reagan. Sometimes it's 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 chief, uh, you know, what is it? What do you say? Chief prophet, like Abraham Lincoln and things like that. And then, of course, America has its own canon of saints. Now, you can see the way that the uh, current American military officers are treated. There's all these, of course, they have their holy, they are, their holy dress on, right? Their uniforms they have to wear in a certain fashion. But then also, like you see, like David Petraeus is still treated like some kind of military genius. Stanley McChrystal was another one before he was discredited. You know, Mark Kelly, James Mattis, that's a huge one, right? People worship James Mattis as the warrior monk or something like that. And they're still charged with making the blood sacrifices that America's civic religion demands, right? Um, just this general worship of the military in the first place. We have already talked about it all episode. And then, of course, the earlier military officers like uh, George Washington, right? There's been several scholars that have, have referred to him as America's Moses. <laughs> and then just the idea of the fan, founding fathers in general, of course, right? That's an overly religious overtone, isn't it? And I think what we talked about the American civic religion, how you can see how much is built onto every single layer of American society. I think this is why really the left hates Trump so much. It's because he's not dignified and presidential, right? He's crass. He's rude. He's kind of a dick. He's a dick. But he doesn't act like the regular presidents do, does he? So therefore, what he's doing to that Oval Office, he's defiling it. He's desecrating it. They see it as this holy place where this amazing work is done, where these, these mere mortals are transformed in these men that don't have any personal interest and they care only about the greater good and, and helping America. They, he, he takes these ideas, right? And he doesn't really care about stuff like that. That's not his big thing. And he certainly doesn't talk like that. So left to see it, see it as desecrating their holy site, right? Their holy place. And because he does so much to kind of delegitimize the American federal government, I really think that's why kind of liberals that have this overdue reverence of the American government, I think that's why they act the way they do, and that's why they hate him so much. So anyway, we're going to cut it here for now. I'm going to come back and revisit this, uh, this topic when I've read some more books on it, but I just wanted to maybe throw out a quick hour-and-a-half session now talking about this subject. So anyway... Uh, thanks for listening, guys. We appreciate you as always. And, oh, some medical content for you today. This is a little bit of boog advice, right? Or even just general travel advice. One of the most useful and effective medicines in your arsenal that you can get over the counter is Imodium. That's right. Imodium antidiarrheal. And if you're booging, right, and you're out running around in the woods for hours a day, if you're on your feet 12, 20 hours a day, then Imodium can literally save your life because if your diet radically changes or if you, you know, you drink or eat some something questionable and you get the shits for a continued period of time, that diarrhea will dehydrate you very, very quickly, which can leave you completely combat ineffective. And then also, just for regular life, if you're driving on the road, say you're taking a long road trip, well, you don't want to have to stop to take a shit every two hours if you, or every 20 minutes if you have traveler's diarrhea or something like that. So I would recommend, like in your go bag or in your plate carrier or someplace in your car, I recommend stuffing away a, a handful of Imodium tablets for a rainy day because there's one of the few treatments there is for diarrhea that's extremely effective, number one, but also... It treats a condition that is extremely frustrating and annoying to deal with, 
very effectively. So anyway, you can check us out on Twitter at status quo pod. You can shoot me an email, the status quo at gmail.com. You can visit our website, thestatusquo.net, and I will catch you guys next week with a brand new episode.